In the last two weeks of March, nearly a million people successfully applied for universal credit, 10 times the usual number. Thousands more were stuck in a huge online queue. They're taking on extra staff, they've redeployed 10,000, they're trying to hire 5,000 more to help them deal with that uh, unprecedented sharp increase in claims from uh, universal credit. Some of the poorest in our society, doubtless, also some richer people, self-employed people, who are going to end up on the social security system in a way that they never might have imagined that they would do so before. As the nationwide lockdown continues and parts of the economy grind to a halt, the Chancellor has announced a package of measures to support people struggling with the economic fallout of coronavirus. But is it enough? Or have 10 years of cuts broken our social security system beyond repair? We will not be able to protect every single job or save every single business. I think there's also going to be have to be a serious rethink about the fragility of our, our whole social insurance, the way in which we support each other. The Weekly Economics podcast is back to dive into the economics of the COVID-19 crisis. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this from my kitchen, so apologies if you hear the kettle boiling at any point. Stay with us. This week, we're joined down the line by Sarah Arnold, NEF's Senior Economist. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thanks so much for being with us in this new virtual reality. (laughs) Great to be here. You have an exciting new proposal to support people who are losing income because of coronavirus. So before we go into that, let's start with the bigger picture. As I said in the intro, we've got more people than ever applying for universal credit. Why is that? Yeah, so you, you started with kind of the most clear statistic that this is a public health crisis, but also an economic crisis. We've seen one million new claimants to universal credit, which is a tenfold increase on expected figures during this time. In normal times prior to this, there were 33 million people in employment. So about one in 30 people at least have lost their jobs or livelihoods. I'm sure most people listening will know at least one person who has. Um, And the reason why we're seeing so many people apply for universal credit is that The government has announced a raft of measures designed to support incomes generally during the pandemic, quite a generous raft of measures for many, which include an 80% income guarantee or up to £2,500 a month for those employed if their um, employees choose to put them on furlough and a similar scheme meant to help self-employed people. And that package is welcome, but it's insufficient because there are many that are not covered under these schemes. For example, anyone who switched jobs um, after the 28th of February, which is the cutoff for this. Um, Anyone whose employers are not actually agreeing to furlough staff. Um, And we're hearing from many people that their employers just simply aren't aren't protecting them in this way. And it's generally the most precarious workers who are not being protected. And then there's many self-employed people also who won't be covered under these schemes because it's a kind of a more complex scheme for self-employed people. Anyone who's recently become self-employed, many people for whom kind of self-employment is how they make a proportion of their income. Um, and they'll also have to wait till the end of June even to get this. So imagine a cleaner working part time for an agency on a zero hours contract. Um, they're highly unlikely to be protected under these schemes. And so that's why they're applying for universal credit, because they've lost their income and many people simply have no other way of getting money to cover their basic needs. And so I want to dive into the kind of the specifics of the scheme a bit more in a second. But for now, a couple of follow up questions on the big picture. One of them is, could you just talk to us a little bit about what universal credit actually is? I know we've kind of talked a little bit about it in the podcast in the past, but like, what is it? How much is it? 
why were people applying for it before, you know, all that kind of stuff. Sure. So universal credit is the main benefit currently as part of our benefit system. Um, It was brought in several years ago to replace many of the other benefits that are in existence that are kind of all separate little benefits that you might already have been aware of. So job seekers allowance, housing benefit, um, all those kinds of things were all wrapped up into one payment. Um, And that's what universal credit is. It's meant to be kind of a safety net, a way of protecting people's incomes if they lose their jobs. Um, And also to support people who are maybe not able to work for a variety of reasons, for health reasons, for example. So that's what it's meant to be for. In terms of kind of how much it's worth, um, it's quite complicated and it is based on the needs that you have. There's kind of a basic payment that anyone gets, the main adult element. That used to be, until a couple of weeks ago, worth £70 a week, which is pretty minimal and as as people who've been trying to live off this for years know basically not enough to live on I think that's why we've seen such huge uses of food banks in the last couple of years and lots of other people's needs are not being met through through universal credit and it's also worth noting other issues with it in terms of there's kind of a cap on the total amount that you can earn and there's particularly punitive parts of it like you can only get support for your first two children so anyone has who has more than three children born recently doesn't get additional support for that so there's lots of issues with it and so is the is the same criteria in terms of assessing universal credit applicants being applied now during corona as it was before yeah pretty much in that the way that it works is you apply for it and then there's a five-week wait while you have to be means tested and they work out exactly how much you you should get and not a penny more and then you finally get paid There is kind of a provision that you can get advanced payments within it, um, but that's also quite complicated, means tested, and you have to pay it back. So it can be also problematic. Wow. So for anyone who's experiencing kind of immediate financial uh, precarity in in the light of coronavirus, whether they're applying for universal credit or one of these government schemes, they're going to be waiting a long time before they actually see any payments. Yeah, I mean, they'll be waiting five weeks at minimum, and that's assuming the system works as it's meant to, which it seems highly unlikely to be able to cope with such a large volume of demand, as has can be seen from kind of the really long waits, even on the website, to get onto the system in the first place. Okay, so staying with the bigger picture for a second then, with, with all this kind of economic turmoil that we've started to talk about, does this mean that we're in a recession now? Are we going into a recession? I've heard a lot of people say recession. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, the technical definition of a recession is where GDP is negative for two consecutive quarters. Um, So we'll only know if we're technically in a recession in a couple of months time, once we've had kind of two quarters of negative growth. But I think it's very clear from unemployment figures um, and from early indicators that we we will be entering a recession. Um, This is a relatively unique situation, though, in that we're essentially inducing the recession. We're shutting down economic activity to protect our health um, and to protect our nation's health. And to ensure that we can do that, we need to continue to be shut down for a little while um, until this is all sorted out. So although we are expecting to be in a recession and we're expecting to see GDP go down, I don't think that's the most useful kind of measure or the most useful thing to be looking at right now. For example, GDP has been growing over the past couple of years following the last recession, but many people have not seen an improvement in their living standards. So it's also about how people are actually experiencing the recession and what their current cost of living is like. 
Mm. And a lot of people that I've spoken to recently have compared it to the 2008 recession. Does it compare for you? Is it better, worse? Well, it's different in, in the, I guess, this point I said that we're essentially inducing a recession. Last time, the recession was driven by a lack of demand. So people basically stopped spending money in the economy because of the kind of the financial crisis and the lack of certainty that kind of pushed down. Um, and so that's why we had a recession last time. This time, it's not just a demand issue. It's a supply issue because we're try- having to shut down um, jobs. We're having to shut down parts of the economy to keep us healthy. So it is a little bit different. And as a result of that, I think people are predicting that we'll see a larger drop in GDP or a more extreme recession than last time. But the question then is, is not kind of how far down are we going to go? It's how do we recover? And what's the trajectory of that recovery? You might hear people occasionally talk about kind of the shape of the recovery. Will it be a V? Will it be a U? They give them letters. Will it be an L? And that is highly dependent on our choices. The government can choose to stimulate the economy after the lockdown is over, um, for example, by investing in infrastructure or stimulating demand by giving people more money. Or we can go down kind of the same route last time. We can go down an austerity route of kind of refusing to spend on public projects, which will drastically decrease our chance of any kind of timely recovery. Okay, so it sounds pretty clear which one you think we should go for. (laughs) Um, I might be biased, yeah. But it's not just me, to be fair. It's now, um, I think, even kind of a mainstream economic consensus that austerity was a disaster. It drove down our recovery and it's really important that we don't do this again. Okay. All right. So let's shift over to talking a little bit more about some of the specific schemes that have been introduced. I know you've touched upon them already, but I'd like to kind of take it uh, area by area if we can. So if you could just re-describe us in a bit more detail what you were saying earlier about the job retention scheme and particularly the scheme for self-employed people, kind of the high level, what's coming out around that? Right. So starting starting with kind of the, the I think one of the most publicized schemes, what's available for employed people. The job retention scheme is a scheme that means the government will pay up to 80% of your income to your employer, which your employer will then pass on to you in return that your employer has to hold your job for you. Just a couple of specific questions on that. So one of them is, does is your employer legally obligated to pass on all of that to you or can they choose to keep some for whatever reason another one is is that 80 percent after tax before tax i know we're getting quite granular here but i feel like these things are quite important because there is a lot of like confusion about what this would actually look like yeah sure so first it is illegal for the employer cannot hold on to this income and not and not pass it on to you um the point is to get money in people's pockets but also to ensure that people's jobs are protected during this point of lockdown. You also asked, is it uh, post-tax or pre-tax? So this is your gross salary. So it's before tax, which actually means that because some of your salary is tax-free, what you'll actually get will be probably slightly higher than 80% of your take-home income because your first your first couple of thousand pounds that you earn is tax-free. The other, I guess, kind of slight detail on this is that the government is only agreeing to do this up to £2,500 a month. So if you earn, say, £100,000, you'll only get up to £30,000 of that protected. Um, So it's not kind of, it's not an unlimited blank check for everybody, but it's ensuring that everybody has enough to afford the basics. Mm, So maybe like a minimum income. 
Yes, indeed, an income guarantee. And then furloughs, you mentioned furloughs. I'd like to know about that, particularly like, you know, the rules, as you said, but then also how is it being taken up? Because I heard that it was actually the employers looking to furlough staff was way higher than government expected. Yeah, so I mean, the government didn't actually say the uptake they were necessarily expecting, but it has been kind of surveys that people have done has suggested that over half of employers are thinking about furloughing some staff. What furlough actually means is that you stay at home and are not allowed to do any work whatsoever. So it's it's a relatively inflexible scheme in that you can't kind of reduce your hours and still be furloughed. That's That isn't how it works. It's a an all or nothing thing. And you also have to be furloughed for at least three weeks. So you can't just kind of, can't just come in and out of this or have your wages covered for a week. It's kind of a serious thing. It's meant to be for companies who would otherwise have to let their employees go, but to ensure that they're able to keep them on during this period of lockdown. Okay. All right. So let's talk quickly about self-employed people. So you mentioned earlier that not all self-employed people are eligible. And I think this is something particular that I've heard a lot of people talking about, not only those who have recently gone self-employed, so they don't have, what, three years of of earnings or whatever, but then also people who admittedly haven't declared all of their earnings for the past three years. What does it mean for them? You know, all that kind of stuff. So like some of the nitty gritty around self-employed people and how they'll expect to come off in all this. Yeah, so with self-employment, it's a bit more complicated, partly because of the way that self-employed people take their earnings. So for many people, they don't just take their earnings and income from their company. So if they own their company, they might also kind of pay themselves in dividends, for example, in this kind of shares of their company. So it's only the income part of it that's going to be protected, the government has said. And you're also right that people who are recently self-employed won't be covered because you need to have had a 2018-19 tax return. So if you've only just started, you won't have one of those. And finally, it's also only for people who earn their in- over 50% of their income from self-employment. So you won't get any of this covered if you have kind of a mixed system. Again, this might be people who are just starting to become self-employed or people who are kind of agency workers in precarious work situations who might have several different jobs, some of which they're counted as self-employed. Okay, so there's quite a few people who will slip through the net here. Yeah, of about, say, 5 million self-employed people, estimates are somewhere in in the region of around 2 million self-employed people are unlikely to be covered. That's a lot of self-employed people. So let's jump into the new proposal that you've been developing to fix this problem. Um, So can you tell us what your proposal is to get us out of this mess? This is one part of, I think, a raft of proposals that is necessary to essentially cover the gaps in the safety net that's been put in place for people. But simply put, the minimum income guarantee is a cash payment that will be available to anyone who applies for it over the next three months. And it will be worth much more than the current levels of support available through the welfare system. So we're suggesting that this would be a much more generous weekly payment of £221, which is equal to the minimum income standard that the Joseph Roundtree Foundation and Centre of Social Policy have estimated is kind of the the minimum amount you need to meet your basic needs. NEF is, I should also say, not the only organisation that's suggesting something like this. TUC and the Citizens Advice Bureau are also suggesting a very similar cash payment available to all. And Open Democracy, for example, are also calling for something similar. They've had over 14,000 signatures on a petition. So this would be a cash payment available to 
everybody. So it would be available to anyone who applies. That's including migrants, those with no recourse for public funds, completely available to anybody. Um, and it would also not be means tested. So it would get around some of the issues with our social security system taking a very long time to do payments because that requires a lot of checks on people to ensure that they um, how much they should be receiving. So that would be one way. We would also suggest using kind of the existing social security system to get it out there immediately. So using the advanced payment mechanism of universal credit, um, which is essentially a way of bypassing all this and just getting cash out immediately. Okay, so I'm, I've got a round of quick fire questions for you on this. We can just do a little bit of tennis. So the first question is, if the government's just giving everyone money, is that the same as universal basic income that we've talked about um, to, to, to great renown on this podcast in the past? So you could call it a partial UBI, I guess, in that it's an unconditional cash payment available to everyone. But it, this is slightly different in terms of most standard UBI schemes, because we wouldn't just be giving it to everyone. You would have to apply for it, although it would be everyone would be eligible for it. You have to come and ask for it rather than it simply being put into the bank accounts of everybody in the country. Okay, so it's not universal, but you have to apply for it. So my second question is then, uh, well, it's kind of a follow up to what you said about it not being means tested. If it's not means tested, but people still have to apply, then how are the applications assessed? You pretty much just apply and then you get the cash. Oh, okay. So it's so that it wouldn't go through a kind of a similar process to existing benefits where you have to prove X, Y and Z to get it. No. So the idea of this would be to reduce a lot of that conditionality to just get cash into people's pockets immediately. So it currently would be available anyone even on, say, a self-employed person who would be able to get the self-employment support scheme from the government further down the line could also apply for this to help tide them over. Anyone who would be supported under those additional schemes, when that money actually comes back to them, it would be taken off the minimum income guarantee. So it, it would be means tested against that further down the line. And also, if you earn over £30,000 in the next tax year, you'll also be asked to pay a small amount of it back, any amount that you kind of earn above that. So it's not about um, kind of giving everybody unlimited cash. It's about giving people who need cash right now but reducing a lot of the kind of the difficulties and the barriers to getting that cash okay so that's good because that speaks to my next question which is what's to stop stop someone who's earning upwards of a hundred grand applying for it but as as you said it's they would then have to pay it back in the next tax year yeah exactly um and it is worth yeah they would have to pay um in, in the case of earning over a hundred grand they would have to pay all of it back it is worth noting, actually, that people across the income distributions right now are, are kind of a facing hardship because if you lose your job, you won't have time necessarily to have adjusted your outgoing. So as we discussed earlier, you'll still have rents you might, or a mortgage, you'll still have care costs, you'll still have kind of all those things in place, you might have debts. And so many people are facing a cash flow issue right now across the income distribution. We obviously need to make sure that the poorest and the most vulnerable in particular have what they need, but it is important to ensure that we all have what we need to get through this crisis together. 
Okay, great. Next quick fire question on universal credit. So basically, wouldn't it just be easier to increase the amount that people get through universal credit uh, in order to address some of these concerns is, I guess, the first bit of the question. Obviously, you mentioned you talked at length before about what's wrong with universal credit. But yeah, some kind of comparison of these two. Why is this one better? So um, I actually do think we do need to increase the um, that payment in universal credit. And so actually, for those already on in the system, it would be done through just increasing that that kind of element of universal credit. It would only be kind of for new applications that they'd have to get this additional mechanism. In terms of why we even need kind of this additional cash payment on top of that, it's because we've had our safety net decimated over, over the last 10 years. And we can't just rebuild that very easily in a week. It'll take a little bit of time. The government needs to is currently scrambling to hire new staff to be able to deal with all these new claims um, and to ensure that the systems are able to cope. But right now, they just aren't. And so what we need is this, we need something in place to tide people over right now, this kind of minimum income guarantee or this emergency cash payment. And we also desperately need to repair kind of the normal safety net, the universal credit and other existing legacy benefits as they as they are to ensure that when in when this lockdown is over or in three months time when the government schemes are running out, what we're left with is a much more comprehensive safety net that is able to do the job that we actually need it to do, which is protect people from destitution. Okay, so we need to think of it as kind of two parallel things, really. It's both about fixing the existing system, which, as you say, has been decimated, and then also kind of building an emergency response fund, really, for people who are experiencing hardship right now off the back of Corona. Exactly. Okay, a few more um, quickfire questions. One of them is how much would all this cost and can we afford it when, as you say, we might be entering a recession or are in one? Yeah, I mean, sorry, I'll try and do this. I realise I haven't been very quick on my quickfire answers. <laughs> the, the simple question is, yes, we can afford it. But the right question is not whether we can afford it, but whether we can afford not to. People are facing extreme economic hardship right now. And people actually need cash to be able to stay in their homes and protect themselves and everyone else. So we're hearing stories of, for example, London bus drivers who are considered high risk by the government. They've been told they have to stay at home for their own safety, but their employer is not putting them on the furlough scheme if they choose to stay at home, all they have is currently the universal credit or, or statutory sick pay. And it's not, they can't afford to live on that. So they're going out to work. And that's obviously not a situation that anyone thinks is a sensible situation. And in terms of like how we can afford it, we can fund it through government bor borrowing. We've estimated the cost to be around £10 billion to cover this for around three months. Now that might sound like a lot of money, but it's relatively marginal compared to existing commitments. The government's committed more than 30 times that in government-backed and guaranteed loans for businesses, which it's expecting to have to write off a significant proportion of that. So it's marginal in the scheme of things compared to the rest of our response. And it's absolutely vital that we protect people as well as businesses. Mm, okay, last few questions on this, because I've got to say, I'm convinced if I wasn't at the start. So one of them is about other countries. So are there other countries that are already doing similar stuff to this? And can we, what can we learn from them if so? Yeah, well, it's worth noting that many other countries already have a much stronger social security system. So they actually don't necessarily need to put so much stuff in place. So Denmark protects up to 90% of earnings for those losing their jobs. Um, Sweden and Germany also above 50%. Um, the UK system, in comparison, protects roughly 17% of median income. So we're, we're really much kind of below kind of what comparable nations already have in place, let alone in response to this crisis. 
Okay. All right. So last question on this then. So after, I mean, you've touched upon it a little bit already, but if you could just uh, specify. So after the coronavirus emergency ends, whenever that is, in your view, would we keep the minimum income guarantee? Would we move to something else? Yeah. To what extent would this have any kind of longevity? Well, yeah, I think what we really need to do in terms of longevity is to sort out the welfare system. So particularly just to fix universal credit. Um, I think it's quite reasonable to have universal credit fixed at what the minimum income for basic necessities should be. So I would I would hope for something like the minimum income guarantee to be moved into kind of the, the existing social security system. I don't think in the long term it's sensible to have a system that's completely unmeans tested because we, we could have a system that would do that. We could have a universal basic income that gives um, everyone some cash. But if we did do that, we would need to think about the opportunity cost and how else we could spend that money. And it's also important that we spend money to support our public services and to provide kind of a a collective safety net for some of the risks that we all face in terms of anyone can um, have health issues, anyone can have need care. So we need to kind of have a good system of public services and a system of social security that protects incomes for those that need it. Okay. And I mean, it certainly sounds like if the minimum income guarantee was to come in, it would kind of change the parameters of what people felt was both necessary and possible in terms of social security itself. Well, I think we're already seeing in terms of existing schemes that the government's announced that we're we're completely rewriting the rule book in terms of what's possible from government support. But yeah, I, I absolutely agree that that should, be, that should be translated as well into the social security system. I do think that as more and more people experience it, more and more people will realise it desperately needs reform. I think right now it's kind of a often on the media effectively considers it as a thing for only other people. And so it doesn't have a huge amount of the, the level of scrutiny that it, it really deserves. Mm. So it might actually encourage kind of solidarity through experience, which can only be a good thing. Okay, brilliant. Well, as I said, thoroughly convinced. And thank you so much for that comprehensive walkthrough uh, of where we're at. Lovely listener, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks so much for being with us. But if you're hungry for more, we'll be following up this discussion in an online briefing over Zoom on Thursday, the 16th of April. We'll be talking to Sarah again and also Caroline Malloy, editor at Open Democracy. Keep an eye on our social media or sign up to the mailing list for updates on that. We'll include the links in the podcast notes too. Sarah Arnold, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find Find out more about your work where can they go what should they read how can they find you so you can go on the new economics website um i have a profile and you can read my writing or you can find me on twitter at sarah sarney okay lovely thanks so much that's it for today's weekly economics podcast if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at weekly econ pod on twitter the weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation i'm aisha thomas smith stay safe <laughs>